from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Splendor and majesty are before him. Joy and strength are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Father, we thank you for these words of your servant spoken 3,000 years ago, which are just as true today for us as they were for him. And Lord, I do, we do ascribe to you majesty and glory and power. We acknowledge that you are the supreme God of the universe and that all things respond according to your word. And it is by your word that we live. It is fact by the spoken word of God that we even uh, exist today in this world. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, we know the God who is in control of eternity and that as we move in that direction, we know that you will bring all things to just and right uh, resolve. In the meantime, Lord, it's a battle and it's a struggle. I pray that you'll keep us faithful in the struggle and that uh, our prayers will be focused on the will of God and that being accomplished. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing and what you have done. I thank you for the men and women here today that you will touch each life. And for those that are not with us because they're on vacation, away uh, for whatever reason, thank you for those that you've brought back to us. We're just grateful for what you have done on our behalf. We ask you to be with us now, to guide us as we look more at your word this day. Pray that it will not just fall on our ears to pass away, but will become part of the fabric of our being, that we will live, be, be walking examples of the Word of God, that others will see and uh, be drawn to you as a result of what you've done in our hearts and lives. Bless as the Word is proclaimed in the service and throughout all of the classes on this premises this day in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in First Chronicles chapter 29. If you have been not with us for a few Sundays, you might wonder how in the world we got to the end of First Chronicles. Because the last time you were looking, you were in Second Samuel. <clears throat> well, what we're doing is bridging the gap uh, between Second Samuel and First Kings. And uh, the, the, the gap is uh, filled in here in First Chronicles. As I mentioned the last time when we first started looking at First Chronicles, by the way, we didn't, we didn't begin the first chapter of First Chronicles. We've just taken a few passages from this particular uh, book because the Chronicles, although they are parallel to uh, the Samuel and the Kings, uh, they have a different thrust. Um, in the Chronicles, you have a more, more of the focus on the spiritual aspect than you do in Samuel and in Kings. Not that that's absent from those books, but the, the more of the focus in Chronicles is that way. And Chronicles is much more selective. Uh, Chronicles does not just duplicate 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, but deals with the high points, the, the issues that are critical in the spiritual history of Israel. And so as we came to the end of 2nd Samuel, 
And if you were to go straight from 2 Samuel to 1 Kings, you will notice there's, there's kind of a gap what happened in there. And so we're looking at uh, some of the events which took place uh, over the last two or three Sundays. And so today, uh, looking at the First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning at verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, O God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer, this, offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants, as our fathers were. Our days in the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build your house for your holy name is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people, who are present here, make their offerings willingly to you. O Lord, the, o Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intention of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. This is possibly the very last prayer that David prayed publicly. It serves, as, you, as we read through this prayer this morning, it serves as a, a powerful illustration of what the true role of the king of Israel was supposed to be. The king of Israel was not supposed to only be the political and the military leader of Israel. He was also supposed to be a spiritual example, a spiritual leader. Now, he wouldn't take the place of the priest, of course, but, but he was a spiritual leader nevertheless, and David fulfilled that role very well. And so in this benediction, we could call it, we find actually an intercessory prayer. And it's an interesting intercessory prayer because it's of the people and by the people and for the people, to quote uh, someone much later in time. Uh, David began this prayer, as we saw it, by exalting the majesty and the power of Yahweh. He does this through allusions to the divine attributes of omnipotence, to the eternal sovereignty of God, and to the glory of God. Uh, you know, we wrestle around day by day and muck around down here on the earth, and I don't think we really understand, or I don't think we can understand, what the glory of God is really like. We see little glimpses here and there when uh, Ezekiel tells us uh, what he saw of God and Isaiah has his vision and we see what word, the best that words can describe of something of the glory of God. 
But I think when, when that day comes and we all witness the glory of God, it's just going to, to use a modern phrase, blow our minds away, you know. It, it's, it's just beyond incredible. And, and so David is, is highlighting this. He acknowledged that everything in heaven and on earth belongs to God and is under his absolute dominion. And, you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. My wife and I have frequently thought in recent months, literally, how, how the world, especially in the United States, seems to be going down to the proverbial hell in a handbasket. You know, things just seem to be going rapidly uh, towards destruction worldwide, actually. Uh, you, you were listening to the news, I think it was uh, a couple of days ago, and they were talking about Africa is a total disaster. The whole continent is just a disaster, you know, and, and it seems like the Islamic world will not be pacified no matter what, you know, and it's all gone, but, but we have to keep remembering God is sovereign over it all, and nothing's going to happen that he doesn't allow, and so we have to keep trusting in that sovereignty, and David is highlighting this. In the 12th verse, David was recognizing that the Lord is the root of all wealth and power. And that's he who makes men great and, and men strong. So even if Kim Jong-il over there declares himself to be a god and his father is a god and everybody has to bow down and worship the statue of this North Korean president, God is not put off by that. He is still sovereign over all of that. And... God has allowed this man to come to power in, in Korea, and God will take him down in, in God's time. Because of that truth, uh, David offers very, very enthusiastic thanksgiving and praise to God. Sometimes it's hard to give enthusiastic thanksgiving if we really feel beaten down, like everything is bad, like uh, Elijah did after he had uh, run away from Jezebel and said, Oh, Lord, I'm the only one left. We could understand how, how he felt, and sometimes we might almost feel that way. But when we know that we're on the victorious team, to use our pastor's uh, uh, concept here of football, or we're on the winning team, then we can give enthusiastic thanksgiving and praise to God. In verse 14, we see manifestations here of uh, the humility of David and the clear logic of David. He states, in effect, that yes, we have willingly given this enormous offering to the Lord, but how big a deal is that when everything comes from Him in the, ver him in the first place? So we're taking it from Him and giving it back to Him. <laughs> What's the big deal? You know, he, he's in effect, he's saying, you know, naked we've come into this world and naked we're going to leave, and anything we have in between, God has given us. And as I was thinking of that, this reminded me of this. Um, these two verses in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. And these are good verses to use if the person tells you, I don't need God because I've earned everything I have and you know I've got it by my strength and by my power. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read in verses 17 and 18, Otherwise you may see in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you the power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. We may have made it, but we couldn't have made it without the strength that God gave to make that wealth. And so, 
this, I think, is, is part of what David is saying here. And most of us, I think, are familiar with the, the passage in uh, James, the first chapter, verse 17, where it tells us that every good thing and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who is immutable, says, with whom there is no shifting shadow. Immutable, unchanging. It's really encouraging to know that the God that David praised is the same God today as he was back then. And he hasn't changed just because mankind has evolved, supposedly, and become more sophisticated. <laughs> we can make computers now that I was reading uh, the other day that can do 15 quadrillion uh, computations per second. You know, I, that isn't the number they use, but it was some huge number. <laughs> and you think, oh, man. Well, they, they were talking about this computer that can in one second do what it would have taken a whole group of men 8,000 years to do with hand computation, you know, or some, some ridiculous number like that. I'm talking to the pastor and all of his little computer in his pocket about that. So there's a whole Bible on it. We're talking about some scripture verse and he put the reference in there and came. Is that right? On this little gizmo yeah. in his pocket. Well, I was reading in... Uh, where I forget where, Christianity Today, I think it was, it said that they now have developed, because they're trying to get the Bible, they don't have time to translate the Bible into all the languages of the world yet, so they're just trying to get the spoken Bible into the hands of people who don't have the written word yet, and that they're able to put the entire New Testament on a single tape. And it's built into this little recorder, so you can't take it out or change it or anything. But the whole New Testament's on this one tape. Put a button and listen to the whole New Testament. I have the New Testament on tape, and it's in a stack this long. You know? <laughs> Just think you get a whole year's worth of Sunday school lessons on a set of 6,000 tapes. Anyway, David goes on to emphasize in this passage uh, concerning the brevity of life, which I think most of us are beginning to be more and more aware of as uh, it passes us by. Uh, when compared to the eternal God, he uses interesting terms there. He uses words of transience. He speaks of people being sojourners, of being tenants, of being like a shadow. You know, we're, we're just a shadow and, and psh, uh, gone after a very short period of time. And he ends verse 15 with this phrase, and there is no hope. We think, oh, wait a minute, David, say that again? <laughs> that doesn't seem to fit with everything else you say. But I think what we have to understand here is he's referring to those who exclusively focus on the life here. It's like if you ever study Confucianism. Con Confucius wasn't concerned with afterlife or eternality or any of those things. All he was concerned was living right here and now. How do we have a better life here? Uh, Confucius was an agnostic. He didn't know if there were gods or not. You know, they've, of course, made him into a god over there, but that wasn't his uh, idea of things. And many people in the world are living only for the moment, here and now. And we know of people who, who almost act like they're never going to die or if they do die, they've got really nothing to worry about because God is the great granddaddy sitting up in his rocking chair up in heaven. And he'll look down and say, oh, uh, you know, you had a hard life. Come on up and join me in my heaven. And 
In the Eastern world, many believe in judgment and they believe in afterlife. But unfortunately, they have placed their hopes in false beliefs, such as Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and so forth. In the Western world, Christianity, the, the Christianity, that one time was embraced by a majority of the population, is now so watered down as to be unrecognizable from a biblical perspective. Even the so-called age of faith, which is the term applied to the Middle Ages of Europe, the church leadership during that time, when, when uh, virtually everybody considered themselves to be a Christian, absolutely everybody you know, in, in Europe, Western Europe, even Eastern Europe, the church leadership had so distorted the biblical message that the majority of the population <coughs> excuse me, lived in fear and superstition. And they were dominated by an all-powerful priesthood that specialized on emphasizing the magical qualities of things like relics, of images, of, of the mass, of the sacraments of the church. And, and so people were, held, were terrorized by this. There was no freedom of thought. There was no uh, personal knowledge of Scripture. They just lived, most people were illiterate, of course, they, and whatever the priest told them, that's what they believed, and that's what they did. And, and the priesthood held people in submission. In the 16th century, the Reformation came along to restore focus on the Word of God. And that's what happens. You know, the church tends to drift and drift and drift away from, from our center focus. This is, this is the foundation, the kingpin of the church it has got to be the Word of God. And so the Reformation restored that focus and the Reformation also called the church in general to account, and many of the abuses of the church were at least reduced. If you, if you know the history uh, of the church, you know that in the middle of the 16th century, the, the church in Europe had a major council in which they tried to clean up the church. It was called the Council of Trent. Trent's a city way up in northern Italy, right at the base of the Alps. A beautiful place. And, but they held a council there that lasted for a decade and a half to try to clean up the church. And, and this was partly due, to, was almost entirely due to the pressure of the Reformation. Unfortunately, within 200 years, the assaults, new assaults were made on the church, which denied that Christianity had anything to offer or that there was any true hope in Christianity. This is seen in what is called the scientific revolution of the 17th century and the enlightenment of the 18th century. There was, there was nothing basically wrong in the, new, in the scientific revolution, nor was there anything basically wrong in the enlightenment. But Satan took and distorted the thrust, the emphasis, to make man the focus and the measure of all things rather than God. If you, um, if you look at what, it, it actually began in the Renaissance with the development of what is called humanism. Humanism is almost self-defining. It's the focus on man rather than the focus on God. Because in the Middle Ages, you had a, a philosophy known as scholasticism in which the focus was on the scripture, upon the writing of the church fathers, and, and, and the focus was towards God. And almost all the teachers were clerics. But with the Renaissance came this effort to try to break the hold the church had over education and, and secularize it. 
And, and this carries over into the scientific revolution and into the Enlightenment in which God is thrust out of the center and man is put into the center and man is exalted. The result has been that in Europe and in North America, the majority of the people today are either agnostic or they do not believe in the afterlife at all, I guess you could say atheistic, or they believe that they have nothing to fear as long as they haven't done any hideous crimes. You know. God will, will look down and say, well, you know, you didn't murder your mother, so uh, you know, you're, you're an okay guy. In addition, there's been through the history of the church the evolution of a doctrine uh, known as the doctrine of purgatory. And this has caused many who consider themselves Christians to believe that as long as they aren't Attila the Hun or Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong, that there's always hope, even after they're dead. Even after they're dead, they'll be in some intermediate place between heaven and hell, and that somehow they'll work their way out and get to heaven someday, even if they've been kind of a bad guy, but not really, really bad. You know, as long as you don't go to hell, you have a hope of getting to heaven someday if you believe in the doctrine of purgatory. Now this doctrine indirectly helped contribute to the Reformation because how do you get out of purgatory? Well, partly by spending time there, but partly by having people on earth buy indulgences which help get you out. And that's what, Lu that's what blew Luther's cork. Luther had been a monk, an Augustinian monk in the Catholic Church. And he got to the place where, you know, this whole idea that the Pope can, can give you uh, an indulgence and you sell it and somebody buys it and their aunt gets 10,000 years off her purgatory became absurd in his mind because it has no biblical base, neither does purgatory. There's no foundation in the Bible for any of those ideas. And so Luther wrote the 95 Theses. And every single one of the 95 theses is a statement for debate on the one doctrine of indulgence. You read it. Indulgence, 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 indulgence. And one of them, I forget which one it is, like Thesis 85 or something, 81, he says, if the Pope can give an indulgence which lets people out of purgatory for money, why can't he do it simply for the love of Christ for free? Well, you know, you can't answer that. You know, there's, there's no good answer to that. And so these, I'm not picking on that primarily, but just these ideas, anything that takes the focus off the fact that as the scripture says, the, the Bible is vehement in what it says. And therefore it is equally vehemently rejected by people in the Western society who don't want to believe that they are accountable for the lives which they live. Because the Bible says things like this, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say except, you know, saint this, saint that, saint somebody else. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The scripture makes it, I think, clear as crystal that we must be born again, that we must repent and be converted, and that there is no other name under heaven by, by whereby we must be saved. It doesn't say can be or maybe should be. It says must. There is no other option. Well, since the Bible is so emphatic 
about the fact that sin is a deadly reality and that without the remission of sin through the blood of Christ, no one will see God. It has become imperative for modern sophisticates, and you all have read them, to demote the Scripture from being the inspired Word of God to being a man-inspired document, which if you look closely, you might find some thread of truth running through it. So look really hard amongst all the errors, and there somewhere you might find some truth. To me, if that's what you believe, why bother calling yourself a Christian? Why bother going to church? It makes no sense. Might as well go to the park or play golf or do something. But such is the teaching in many of the mainline churches in America today. Churches what used to be on the cutting line, cutting edge of Christianity are now off in this view of things. They view evangelicals who take the Bible literally as medieval anachronisms who are hopelessly unsophisticated and out of touch with the real world. How does it feel, <laughs> you unsophisticates? Furthermore, some have gone so far as to say that it isn't that God created man, it's all wrong, it's man created God. And I, I get literature from the History Book Club and uh, several books recently have come out with titles something like this, The Origin of God, The Invention of God, The Idea of God. You know, where did this idea of God come from? Who, who thought it up? Well, this is what David is referring to. He's saying, in effect, he, he you know, of course doesn't know about the Middle Ages and all these things, obviously, but he is specifically saying that such people have no hope. But they refused to recognize it. They would never admit that they were responsible to anyone for the life that they live. And that has been actually specifically stated by people like Bertrand Russell and the um, Huxley family. You know, all have heard of Julian Huxley and Thomas Huxley and Aldous Huxley, British leaders in the area of, of uh, biology and science and philosophy and so forth. Uh, they have in effect said, I am accountable to no one for the life that I live. I, I don't want there to be the concept of God because that might imply I'm accountable to somebody, but I'm not. They would not begin to admit that they're wretched sinners whose only hope was in the grace and mercy of an almighty creator. You know, they, they talk about, the scripture even talks about the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. Well, David continues this joyous prayer by acknowledging the fact that God judges every heart, that he delights in righteousness. Now, you and I might say, oh, but I don't feel very righteous. But you know, our righteousness is imputed to us through our faith in Christ. As we've turned to him and confessed our sin and had him enter our lives and the Holy Spirit's upon us, that righteousness is imputed to us. And that's why we're given the gospel wash rag, you know. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin and to cleanse us, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, I don't want to trivialize that, but, but even Jesus said to Peter, you are clean, but yet not all. There's a little cleaning up that needs to happen, but we can't do it on our own. It's done by, by Christ. And so, as we have placed our faith in Christ, we are righteous. 
and he looks upon us as righteous. He then proclaimed, in, proclaimed to God the integrity of his heart and the integrity of the hearts of his people and that they had willingly given this massive gift. Now remember the gift that we, we talked about when we looked earlier in the passage? We're talking about a multi-billion dollar gift that David and, and his people have given towards the construction of this temple. That is, if you were to translate all those materials into modern values, we'd be talking about billions in gold and silver and iron and copper and, and wood and all the other things that were uh, to be used in the construction of the, of the temple. He then prayed that God would keep the hearts of his people focused on him. We all know how we can go to that high point. We can be on the top of Mount Carmel and have a great victory. And then we can fall into the slew of despond the next day and think that's all is lost as it was in Elijah's view of things. But we have to keep our focus on him every moment of the day. Furthermore, he asked God to give Solomon a heart for keeping the commandments that God had given and to keep all of his word. And keeping them not just in the sense of learning them. Oh, yes, these are the commandments. I see these carved in stone here, and those are the commandments. But in doing them, incorporating them so that he exhibited the commandments in his lifestyle. And, of course, David was particularly concerned that Solomon would therefore follow through and build this temple. You remember how badly David wanted to build a temple. It would have been his greatest joy to have been able to build a temple, but God said, no, the man of peace, Solomon, is the man who will build this temple. But David was able to acquire all the building materials, and so he wanted to be sure that it was done. Well, after completing this great public benediction, David led his people in mass worship. This has to be one of the high points of the history of Israel. I think it would have been a wonderful sight to behold. I don't, I, you know, I don't know, but I'm hoping that uh, we'll be able to see a, the great eternal video and we can push forward and backwards and replay and say, show me that, that hour when David prayed that great intercessory prayer before his people there in Jerusalem just months probably before he died. I'd like to see the prayer. Of course, it would have to come through in the language. We, we would all have the language of heaven by that time, which of course is Hebrew. And uh, <laughs> so we'll all be able to uh, understand the prayer that he uh, prayed. And it would have been a sight to behold. Here we have the elderly, sweet psalmist of Israel standing before hundreds, possibly thousands, of the tribal elders, the government leaders, the military commanders, the priests, the Levites, everybody that counted. He's standing before them. Now remember the Jerusalem of there he would have been standing. Isn't the Jerusalem you will know if you've seen pictures or if you've been in modern Jerusalem because the Jerusalem he was in is not even in the old city. In fact, it's just a barren hill with some ruins on it. But, you know, whatever public square there was, uh, probably up in the north end of the city there, here was this crowd, and, and David was standing before them praying this prayer. And God's presence, I think, would be, have been palpable. I think if you could have been there, you'd think, God is in this place. 
you'd had a real sense of it, I believe. And then to seal their dedication, a great sacrifice was made the next day. And of course, you know, if you're an animal rights activist, you're going to be real ticked about these things. <laughs> but 3,000 animals were sacrificed to the Lord, along with drink and grain offerings. The celebration ended with a great and joyous barbecue for all those present in Jerusalem that day. You know, kind of a wonderful end to, near end at least, to the reign of David. It's, his reign isn't over yet, and there's some problems that are going to crop up yet, as we're going to see. But it was a real party. If they'd had fireworks, there'd have been fireworks <laughs> uh, at that particular time, I'm sure. Well, you may have noticed that in the passage that we read today, we didn't go to the end of the chapter of First Chronicles 29, which is the end of the book. And we aren't going to uh, read those verses. You can read them, of course, obviously, whenever you feel like it. But the next verses describe the accession of Solomon. But things aren't over with David yet. Some significant events have yet to occur before Solomon actually sits on the throne securely. And so between this great celebration that we just read about here and this great public prayer and Solomon being firmly placed on the throne of Israel, there was a series of events which are described in the first two chapters of 1 Kings, which we are going to eventually get to. But I'm not going to plunge straight into 1 Kings yet because I'm really, well, it's, we're, we're going to ratchet it up a level here. Um, we're going to go PowerPoint with uh, 1 Kings so that every Sunday, hopefully, we'll have the equipment here and the, the pictures and the maps and all the stuff that will go with it will be part and parcel of this. Larry Tony has equipped me to do this, and I know he's been wondering when in the world I was going to get to it. But it's a big learning curve for me. I did get a whole course at the college onto PowerPoint this past year in world, ge world regional geography, which was a very logical one to do that, where we can look at all the places that we're talking about in the class. But in the meantime, while I'm doing this, it'll take a few weeks to get this all to go together, I want to uh, squeeze in kind of an interim thing here in which what we're going to do, I'm entitling it Israel Through the Millennia. And what I'm going to do is back up, and we're kind of going to, review up to where we are and go beyond all the way through the, the history of the United Kingdom, of the divided kingdom, of, I should have Dr. Walmart do the intertestamental, I, we're not going to go into detail about that, but at least, you know, fly over that period, and all the way up to 2003 as far as Israel is concerned. Just kind of looking at the evolution of that state from the idea that was placed in, in Abraham's mind by God. 4,000 years ago, when he said, when Abraham, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you and those that follow you. And he renewed that promise to Isaac, renewed that promise to Jacob. And how did this happen? You know, and, and uh, is it a big deal? <laughs> well, in terms of the kingdom of God, it's a big deal. If you go over to that land, you're going to think this is a big deal. You know, there's nothing but rocks here. That when, when uh, one of the times, I think the time when Len and Edith were there uh, as well, uh, 
one of the persons said that there's, a, there's an old story going around that when God created the world and he sent the angels around building all the mountains and everything, when they got done, they had a whole pile of rocks left over. <laughs> so they just dropped them in Israel, you know, and what else to do with them. So they just dropped them all in Israel. And so when you're over there, you think, this is a one rocky place, you know, how in the world they grow anything over here. And that's why, for example, I don't know if you remember this or not. I know you're all old enough to remember it, but maybe a quarter of a century ago, kind of around the time of the late great planet Earth being published and some of the books after that, there were those who were saying that some big order had been placed with an Indiana limestone company, uh, that they were get, wanting to mine some limestone and going to secretly ship it over to Israel for the building of the temple. That's ludicrous. They have far better limestone right there. They do in Indiana. They got some of the best limestone in the world. I mean, the whole country of Israel is made out of limestone. You know, they don't need to ship it from anywhere. In fact, if you if visit the temple site, underneath the temple site is is a big a quarry in which they quarried stones that were used to build the temple of Solomon. You know, apparently, and they call it Solomon's quarry, whether they're not really sure that it came from that time period. But anyway, the point is, they don't need any limestone from Indiana. Uh, to build the, the temple. They don't need to import any rocks. When Peter the Great built St. Petersburg, he built in a swamp and he ordered everybody who ever came to the site had to bring rocks with them. Well, you don't have to do that to Israel. You know, don't bring any rocks. Take some home, in fact. They don't need any more there. Anyway, so next Sunday we're going to uh, begin doing that and that will take us, um, pro hopefully it'll take us at least mostly through August, if not through August. And so... What I like to do is around the time school starts, uh, hit uh, First Kings with a new, uh, with a, a new vengeance, I guess you could say, or something of that nature.